We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty Podcast Network. Welcome to those listening on the Alliance of Liberty Podcast Network, which of course has shows hosted by Mark Clare, Brian McWilliams, and myself. And welcome to those who are listening on the Finding Freedom podcast feed, which exclusively has Finding Freedom shows, which is uh, the show you're listening to right here. So happy to have you wherever you came from. And please, if you enjoy what you're listening to, if maybe this is, you know, you've listened to several episodes or maybe even several hundred episodes, please go to either or both of those feeds and give me a five-star rating and a nice review. I would appreciate it. It helps with the algorithm and, you know, it's free. I provide this content for free. Of course, we have many patrons who subscribe to us at uh, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty and at lionsofliberty.locals.com. And I appreciate all of you. I appreciate those of you who, you know, just listen and don't give reviews and and don't, uh, you know, join the Patreon. That's most of you. But I really appreciate those of you who support us in some way, even just by giving a nice review. So if you do that, I thank you. And uh, I promise I will read some reviews on the next show if I get them. So go do it. I got an awesome show for you guys today. I got Michael Heiss, founder of the Mises Caucus. It's no secret that there's been, you know, some disagreements internally between the hosts here on Lions of Liberty on how we feel about the Mises Caucus. I am someone who supports the Mises Caucus. I have my criticisms. But overall, as you'll find about, I don't want to talk about it too much because you'll find it on the show as Michael and I talk back and forth. But I feel, this is me personally, this is my opinion, that the most powerful aspect, um, the thing that is going to be the legacy of the Mises Caucus years from now is the community that has been built and the power of that community to um, move the ball in a decentralized fashion I, I think and I hope. Um, politically, yes, I think there will be some influence, of course, and I will support that as well. But I think at the at the local level, people coming together and really changing the world outside of the, you know, structured, approved three by five index card of allowable transactions. I'm gonna steal that from, from Tom Woods. But yeah, I, I really think the Mises Caucus has something special going. Um, with the community. So hope you enjoyed today's episode and please don't forget to subscribe whichever feed you're listening on. All right. Well, we are live to the Facebook pride and also on uh, on YouTube at our unlisted link. Um, if you guys have any questions as I'm talking with uh, Michael Heist today, feel free to drop them in the chat here and I'll try to ask uh, ask what I can. But uh, just to quickly introduce Michael, for those of you who don't know him, I'm sure most of you do, but 
founder of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. And uh, I think, I think, Mike, I think the first time I met you probably was back in 2018 at the LP convention up in uh, in Shippensburg at that, that yep. little tiny that little tiny room. And it's kind of crazy to think. You know, compare that convention to the latest uh, Pennsylvania one, at least, and, and just the size of it is pretty pretty massive. How much things have changed? Um, it, it was my my first convention. I was actually helping out with the Dale Kearns campaign, and uh, I met Michael, and that's when you f- were first starting to talk about the the Mises Caucus. And I, I remember you you know talking about it a little bit. That maybe you were just planning it at, at that point, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just crazy to think how far you've come from then until now. And uh, I want to get into, uh, you know, talking about Reno and in the future and beyond. Um, but I kind of want to turn back first question. Um, I, I know you've talked about your, your past some and how you know, Ron Paul and, and others um, in the you know, libertarian movement um, really helped to pull you out of some uh, some tough times. So I just I kind of wanted because I haven't really heard you go into detail on it. Maybe you have another podcast, but I kind of wanted to kind of hear your backstory, where you came from, and kind of share a little bit about that. So before there was Ron Paul, there was Alex Jones. Um, you know, so and I'm talking like I'm 14 years old. You yeah. Know? So don't really have anything at, uh, built up. Uh, and it was his documentary. So I, I kind of got into 9-11 truth at the very beginning when I was very young. Uh, and I know that's not the liberty movement per se, but um, it helped me at a very young age to kind of break down certain barriers. And I had kind of, because of that, already seen the, the, the state as evil or at least capable of great evil. Um, and so by the time I did encounter Ron Paul, that wasn't such a stretch. Um, and, and I really think that the fact that I was that young helped a lot of it because, you know, in order to believe something, you know, despite whatever anybody's opinions might be on nine 11 truth and and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you know, people build up their identities over time and they build up their life experience over time. And then that starts to form the narrative of their life and their worldview and all of these things. When you're 14 years old, you don't have that stuff. You don't have like the ingrained paradigm within you to say, this cannot be true. And just like knee jerk fight it. Um, and, and so I basically just took that and was like, oh, that's pretty nuts. Uh, seems, you know, seems reasonable to me and started taking it to school with me. And, you know, I didn't realize that there was an issue socially with these things until I started going to school uh, with these <laughs> things. And, and, and uh, you know, but I'm, I'm a I'm a pretty stubborn person. And, and so like my response to being told I'm crazy is just to keep doubling back and like, well, am I? I mean, you know, like, I don't know. And, and just got, keep reading, keep watching. So, uh, so four, 14 years old, sorry to interrupt you. So I'm trying to set the stage. 14 years old, you're in early, what that? what's that? Freshman, sophomore, high school. And you're coming into school and you're talking about, um, you know, 9-11 and how it was an inside job. And you're talking about all these different things about Alex Jones. And so you were getting some pushback from your from your classmates. Right. Yeah. And 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 like so I would say my my first form of activism ever was I made an anonymous Facebook page dedicated to 9-11 truth. And 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 specifically, you know, I'm not talking about holograms and nuclear weapons and shit like that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm talking about like, you know, thermite architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, that kind of stuff. And um, I started friend requesting people from school from this anonymous 9-11 truth account <laughs> Um and and posting my own like research notes and documentaries and you know all these different things and mm-hmm. 
you know, it took people a little while to figure out that it was me. But I had been going on, you know, a journey after that. I encountered Ron Paul in 2007, 2008. But again, like people forget how much has changed in that time. Like the Internet, the Internet is is so completely proliferated in our lives. These phones are so completely proliferated. And it just wasn't that way back then. You know, like back then I was still living with my parents and we had a single computer in the living room with a dial up connection that we all shared. You know, mm-hmm. like, and, and, uh, so I didn't know anybody. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to get involved. I didn't know that there was this underground world. I just knew that I encountered this guy, you know, from the evolution of Alex Jones, I had, I had encountered this guy who really resonated with me with, um, you know, my best friend, we kind of went through this thing together and, um, you know, that was, that was the very beginnings of it. And then by the time 2011 rolled around where it was like, Ron's going to be running again, that's where we kind of made the decision of like, okay, we've got to do something, you know, like we, we've mm-hmm. just got to do something. Um, and what something was for us to get started was, you know, we would, we would, uh, go around in the, in the dark of night around town and we would take like cardboard boxes out from back of Kmart, uh, you know, stuff like that. We would spray paint Infowars or end the fed or Ron Paul 2012 mm-hmm. or something like that. And then literally nail them to trees, uh, around the neighborhood. Um, and, and guerrilla you know, tactics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously my parents thought I was nuts. My friends, you know, my friend, my other friends thought I was nuts, you know, like my video game nerd friends. And, uh, you know, that's just how it got started. And, and so at one point I bought a bullhorn and I went to the federal reserve of Philly and just started bullhorning talking points and, and stuff that I had heard from Ron. And it was just me and my friend. And I actually have this on video. It's the first time that I had ever even attempted something like that. And we kept doing it, you know? And so it was just me and him that first time. And then it was like five people. And then it was like 12 and then it was like 40. And, and so when, that was just, that just purely spread just from you two going with a bull, bullhorn and then just like word of mouth. Or did you start setting up like, like I events? I was posting and, about it. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was making Facebook event pages and, you know, and, and um, you know, some, some crazy things happen where like, so one of the one of the things that we did was uh, my buddy Kyle. He had gotten these three like uh, four by eight pieces of plywood, and then like mm-hmm. our our backyards at the time there was like the backyard, a hill, and then the highway that ran parallel with our road. So like we took these three pieces of plywood and put infowars.com, you know, on it, um, so that like cars pass by, you would pass these three pieces of like wood that had that on it. Well, it turns out a guy named Keith Smith, whose you know family was uh, libertarian, they were involved. You know, they were Alex Jones people. They were his parents were longtime tax protesters and stuff like that. He saw these signs immediately, exited on the next exit, and started driving up the road um, that you know ran parallel with the highway. And then he saw a yard that had a huge garden out in front of it, and was like, "I bet that's the guy." And that was, in fact, my buddy Kyle. And uh, so he knocked on the door and this is kind of around the same time where it was like 40 people that showed up. So like we started getting all these people. We thought he was a fed, you know, we were all paranoid. And, mm-hmm. and, um, but that's where we kind of got, turns out that 40 people that came out was part of this group in Philadelphia run by guys named uh, Mike Salvi. Uh, James Babb was part of it. Mark mm-hmm. Passio was part of it. Rob. Uh, oh my God. Why am I forgetting Rob's last name? Uh Pepe, Rob Pepe was a part of it. And it was called uh, uh, Truth, Freedom, Prosperity. And it was basically this like eclectic group of anarchists and survivalists 
uh, conspiracy theorists, people who were really into Tesla, uh, you know, that, that had regular activity. And so that all kind of pulled me into this underground world. And I just never looked back since. So you start or really you you start early in activism just at, at the at the ground level with just a, a bullhorn going out talking about your, your end the fed talking points build up this community around you um and tap into other communities of course i mean you, you you're growing tapping into this uh libertarian libertarian community that's that, that grew mostly you know, out of out of Ron Paul in 2008 and, and 2012 um fast forward to that time when i met you in like 2018 this is coming off of Rand, yeah, coming off of Rand Paul's disappoint, disappointing 2016 presidential campaign. Um, at what point did you start getting involved in like attending um, Libertarian Party, you know, county meetings and, and things like that? So I got involved with the party in 2015 after Rand Paul fizzled out. Um, I had never really taken the party serious, uh, before that I was, I was an apolitical. So like, you know, I got really heavy into the Ron Paul thing. They cheated him in front of everybody very publicly. Uh, I became a very angry ANCAP after that, uh, did a whole bunch of stuff in the interim man on the street stuff, writing, organizing events, uh, all kinds of stuff. And went through like a personal heartbreak, like a personal tragedy in my life that kind of took me out of the game. And right around the time that the 2016 uh, presidential race was kicking up, I was kind of coming back into the scene, trying to Mm -hmm. find my way. I knew that I had done the shotgun approach before that and that I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to, like, find something concrete long term and stick with it. Um, And I wasn't sure if the LP could be that thing. So I I started dipping my toe in because, you know, Ran Ran did not carry the torch (laughs) that Ron lit. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what we were all hoping for. And it just didn't happen. So it's like, where the hell do I go now? So that's that's when I looked at the party um, and I actually got involved and supported. I mean, I, I didn't support Johnson in the primary, um, but I knew he was going to win. And, you know, so I supported him after that. And uh, basically what what led to the, the caucus was just comparing my experience with the Ron Paul revolution and my experience with the Kerry Johnson campaign. It was night and day. Um, one campaign or what well, the Ron Paul thing, it was just so electric. You know, it, it had this real community element to it. Uh, and and every time you met a new Ron Paul supporter, it's like you met a new best friend. And, you know, we were producing a movement that was scary. They were going out of their way to ask him ridiculous questions on the stage. They were obviously afraid of his intelligence on the stage. They were blacking him out of the media. And you had all of this crazy grassroots stuff where, like, I think there was one night where it was like blackout night where overnight people just went out and put Ron Paul signs all across the country all mm-hmm. over. And, yeah, then, you know, that, that was and, and the, like there was the original money bombs and it was all grassroots. And this is like when social media was very, very formative. You know, people forget that, that it wasn't always what it is now. And uh, so, yeah, it just really, really felt like you were a part of something big, you know, and, and that feeling always stuck with me. That was completely absent from the Gary Johnson campaign. Um, you know, it was just overly political. Johnson was given great opportunities you know, he had the CNN town hall. He had, relatively speaking, solid media coverage and was just scared to be a libertarian, you know, a full-throated libertarian. Socially conservative, fiscally responsible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, it just got worse and worse as the campaign went on. And, you know, on one hand, I would be asking, I, I can't remember who it was, but the campaign manager for the Johnson campaign in the state was this 18-year-old kid. And I would go to him and say, 
Can I, you know, I need signs. Can you please get me signs? Well, I, I didn't get the signs, but then if I made a comment that was cr- on Facebook that was critical of like, yeah, man, if he, if he goes down this vaccine path, I, I don't think I can do it. Hey, can you please delete that? No, I need signs. Like, what is this? You know, like, and, and, you know, so it was just night and day and it was kind of in the aftermath of that, like that I just started kind of doing the comparisons, doing, making the observations and being like, this party really needs the Ron Paul revolution in here. We really need the wider liberty movement in here. Cause like I said, prior to 2015, when I got involved in the party, this is the thing that surprised a lot of people in the party. I was already pretty well connected through the movement. I had done a lot of man on the street stuff, a lot of cop block stuff. I had written for many different websites. I, I had been doing podcasting. I'd interviewed a lot of people. Like I, I was already, I, I was a, a movement creature, you know? So it was actually a weird change to, to go into the movement or I'm sorry, the party. Mm-hmm. Take us through just like the, the growth of the Mises caucus from, you know, from that time, post Gary Johnson, up, up until Reno, I mean, just I mean, I know it's it's a long stretch of time, but what 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 are some of like the the highlights that you look back on to mark to mark the growth of it? So it started in late 2018 as an idea, and there's been this weird thing where I don't want to sound extreme, but it's been like providential the way certain things have happened uh, over time, even from the beginning. You know, so basically I have posts, you know, on my Facebook from well before where I was kicking around the idea and why I thought there might be a need for such a thing. Uh, and then one day I just made the group, you know, the Facebook group. I hadn't fully committed to it yet, but I was kind of dipping my toe in. I made the Facebook group. Hours later, that same night is when the former chair of the LP, Nick Sarwark, um, said that the Mises Institute was the preferred think tank of Nazis which wow. just organically on its own resulted in a whole bunch of other really angry and caps in my Mises caucus group, you know, like overnight. And, and there was a whole lot of energy there. People were ready for this. And, and so I just kind of ran with it and, uh, you know, got a lot of support and it was very formative at that time of like just tagging, you know, going around, getting in arguments with Sarwar, getting in, in arguments with, uh, you know, people who support him, tagging the group. If you don't like this, we have to do this. And we went from nothing to in, in late 2017 to 22% of the vote for Joshua Smith at the 2018 National Convention. And honestly, I don't even remember how we did that. I, I, I don't I don't know how we did that. We didn't have all the state teams that we have now. We don't have the pack. It was literally just organic word of mouth. Yeah, that was um, incredibly quick. Like to be able to, yeah, to get to that that amount of vote that quickly is that's pretty remarkable in hindsight. Yeah, it it really is. I don't know how we did it. Um, and uh, you know, so went from there. Josh was down to run again and and spearheaded again. That took us into 2020, and it's kind of I would say in that time where. Um, because, you know, th- th- there is an origin to the to the conflict. It didn't just happen. You know, they did that thing with, uh, call, or well, Sarwark did that thing of, like, calling the Mises Institute Nazis, where the conflict between us and the party really got bad, though, was, you know, I came in, I was energetic. They were, you know, talking to me. I actually had Sarwark in the Facebook group at, at the beginning, just to kind of really? show, like, yeah, like, and, and I had, like, communications with him at that point of, like, listen, man, like, we're really trying to do something for the party here. This isn't just, like, a He-Man, Sarwark Haters Club, like, you know, and this is the very, very beginning, and I thought maybe those conversations would be in good faith. Of course, they weren't, um, and where things got really, really bad was they, I talked with them about bringing Ron Paul and Judge Knapp to the 2018 convention, 
And the chair of the convention committee at that time encouraged me to go out, go ahead and go out and do it and try to make it happen. So I started down that process. I had interest from them to do it. And then Ron Paul from the, the Ron Paul Institute wrote an article. Uh, and there was one paragraph in that article that said something to the effect of like, the Libertarian Party is not living up to its namesake and it's going to have to be reformed in order to get back to that. So you read that and you're me or you're like us. It's like, yeah, of course, Ron, Ron's got it right. Again, you read that and you're the LP establishment and you're very angry. Um, mm-hmm. So this person came back to me with this article, the, the, the convention committee chair, and li- like literally said, Ron Paul doesn't even know what we're about. He's out. And I'm like, okay, this dude's obviously just angry and, and, and emotional right now. He'll get over it. <laughs> you know, like, and, and, um, so I kind of just let it go for like a month and a half and tried to work my own angles to get in touch with Ron Paul personally. Now I never was able to do that, but in doing so I ended up back in contact with the original agent of his that I had gotten interest from to begin with. That was like six weeks later. So at that point, it's like, all right, it's time to come for full circle. It's time to go back, you know, and, and push this through. So I went back and I'm like, hey, you know, we need certain information. When is he going to speak? What time? You know, when does he need to be there? Just basic logistics. And I was ignored. And 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 so I was like, dude, do you really want me to go to Ron Paul's people and tell him that you don't want them? Like, is that is that really what you're going to make me do? And the convention committee chair gave me a thumbs up. And I had to go to Ron Paul's people and say, I'm really embarrassed and I don't know what to say. Um, This isn't me, but they want to go in a different direction. And again, they didn't know that I was already connected through the movement. So I went out to like the anti-media. I went out to the Free Thought Project. I went out to anybody who I could and wrote up an article complete with the screenshots of these interactions. And it became a flood of people who were like, you know, you just canceled Ron Paul. The LP just canceled Ron Paul. What, What the and and. So it was so bad that it's one of the only times that I've ever seen Nick flip flop, you know, and, and change his stance and they got heat bad. Ron Paul himself made a video addressing it. Um, and that's where the conflict got really, really bad. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so Nick, so I, I can't even remember. There's been so much that happened. So Nick actually flipped back then and said, Oh, we should have Ron Paul. Or, oh my God, Ron Paul is a lifetime member of this party, and he is a he is a you know our 1988 uh, ca- uh, candidate, and of course he would be welcome here. And if and if he wants to come, I'll make sure he's here. Hey, taking a quick break here to tell you about a podcast you should check out from our friend Justin Campbell. It's called the Fact Check This podcast. If you're fed up with fact checkers flagging everything as misinformation without actually backing it up, then you should definitely join Justin every Monday and Wednesday to fact check the fact checkers and to get the truth about what's going on in the world. Check it out everywhere podcasts are found. Fact check this. You know, imagine that. And yeah. uh, <laughs> Probably not very sincere offer, but... Yeah. No, no. But that's where the conflict kind of really came from. And, you know... What these people have not realized is that their insane opposition to us, their insane hysteria to us has been a big driver of the growth because people more and more wanted a libertarian party. If we're going to have a party that's named after our tradition, it should represent our tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and, and seeing it in the hands of completely dishonest progressives, basically, um, you know, incited them to join. 
So, you know, that led us, that kind of energy carried us into the 2020 campaign uh, or convention, I should say, where we took 40% of the vote. So we went from 22 to 40. And, you know, there was, I won't get into all the details, but there was a lot of, a lot of attempts to corrupt the process going into that convention. Well, this was the, uh, that was a hybrid convention, right? Online and in person. Yeah. 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 So there was that COVID had broken out. Uh, the party had split on how to handle that. You know, some people were gripped by fear. Others didn't care because we knew pretty early on that it was, you know, if you were young and generally healthy, you're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, so they used that to try to stop the in-person convention because they knew that we're young and healthy and don't care and that they're old and jaded and are scared, you know, and, and that they might not show up. Like there was internal conversations amongst the credential or the convention committee that were reported to me of like, we have to cancel the the in-person convention or the caucus is going to take over, you know? So this is, this has been going on for, so yeah, there was all kinds of corrupt activity around that, but we took, despite all of that, we took 40% of the the vote at the 2020 Mm -hmm. convention. Um, And I think it became very palpable that we were growing and that if we just keep going, that we're going to take it. But the thing that really dawned on me at the 2020 convention that has now been mm-hmm. a very powerful insight uh, ever since is I knew we were going to lose at that convention when it came down to the stretch. Um, and, and I was very, very concerned about like, how am I going to hold everything together? How am I going to keep people motivated, you know, uh, and, and believing in this and, and, and all of that. And, you know, basically two days of business were wasted Saturday night was the chair's race. That was the only piece of business that was done that night. Our candidate, Josh Smith, had lost like 60-40 pretty much. And, uh, you know, so at this point I was really concerned. Well, we had bought an Airbnbs for some of our, our delegates. And they threw a rager at one of these Airbnbs. So I went to that rager with all these concerns and worries and, and, and all this stuff. And when I got there, none of it existed. None of it existed. They, they, they were just – everybody was just happy to be there, be around each other, um, and, and having a good time. And that's when it dawned on me of like, oh, okay. Th- th- like this is, this is now a community with a culture and that culture is stronger than the political stuff so that it what stays we, together when, even when we lose. J- j- just to dig in there, why do you think that that culture, that community was able to build up so quickly? Just what, what do you think caused that? You know, it's that's a really good question. Um, I don't exactly know because it's kind of like asking why did the, the the culture get so strong inside the the Ron Paul campaign? Um, mm-hmm. I I think it's because we're all genuine genuine believers in the ideas and we don't want to sell out and we're kind of united by that. And then in that uniting, we all got to know each other and we all became bonded uh, through the, kind of the conflict that we were in. And, and I think that is a big part of it because we're, yeah. we're kind of the underdogs going against the LP establishment and, you know, and they're fucking us this way and this is not right. And, you know, and, and all of that. And I think that kind of came together and it has only, you know, exponentially grown ever since then. Yeah, that's that's kind of where, where my thoughts go to. I mean, <clears throat> really, the internal conflict probably helped to, to build that culture. And, you, you I mean, you had eyes on a, a vision of, you know, what everyone wanted to accomplish, take over the LP um, and I, I think like one of the interesting things to watch will be how does that culture and community evolve to, I mean, it, it sucks. It had to start with, you know, this internal conflict in the LP. How's it going to evolve into, you know, a more external conflict where, you know, it, where, you know, you're facing uh, duopoly and yeah. 
It's already so, happening. I just saw the nation put a hit piece out on us. You know, the Libertarian Party has gone alt right, so they just can't help themselves. They want us to grow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Where the heck does that even come from? Like the, I mean, the the Nazi stuff that that came from basically Nick, you know, attacking the the LPMC, and then recently what they went out to the Southern Poverty Poverty Law, um, and uh, it had a who condemned the LPMC right, but. I mean, is there is there any basis in any of this? Has there, has there been any member of of the LPMC that has you know said anything that can be you know even taken out of context that would you know look like alt right or, or or back any of these Nazi claims? Nope. I mean, we've we've funded we've spent like fifty thousand dollars on local level candidate support. We have supported people who have gone on to hate us. Uh, we have supported people from all different backgrounds of libertarians for no other reason than we thought that they had a viable race. Um, I would say I personally was more critical of Trump uh, than even some of like maybe people who came from the Ron Paul campaign. I, mm-hmm. I always thought Trump was given more latitude on the foreign policy stuff than he ever deserved. And, and, and I always ran with that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm right there with Dave Smith of like, he's a war criminal. You know what I mean? He should be in jail, jail for war crimes specifically related to, uh, uh, Yemen and for I, I feel like the whole murder of Soleimani thing is just kind of like swept under the rug and not treated like the absolutely insane thing that that was. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, well, he didn't start any new wars. It's like it's not for lack of trying, you know, like if you murdered even Republicans would be beating the war drums if Kamala Harris was assassinated. You know, like, yeah, and, and, for sure. Yeah. And and um that's basically what we did to that country. And yeah, so I think what it is, is that we are not beholden because there's this kind of dynamic where like Joe Jorgensen is a perfect example of this, where Joe Jorgensen is plumb line libertarian. But the problem is, is that she's blue pilled. She's beholden to she might not be beholden to the ideologies or, or the politics of the regime, but she's beholden to the narrative of the regime. And and. Mm-hmm people seem to act out the premise that they are more interested or more driven by the narrative than they are, say, policy. Um, and so you've got to nail the narrative before you can ever, um, you know, in order to draw people towards the ideas, which draw them towards the policy. And and um, so, you know, that's why, in my opinion, that's why she was supporting BLM while the cities were burning, because, you know, these are these are the righteous rising up. I know it's a little ugly, but, you know, and, and it was all within the confines of that narrative. And if you shift from and i think the lp has built an identity around that trying to be respectable trying to get mainstream appeal instead of appealing to the counterculture of the country and saying fuck all this you know Mm -hmm. and and that's what we want to do is appeal to that counterculture which means by by necessity we're going to run afoul of the regime narrative and you know that might land you on the face of hate watch of the southern poverty law center like me uh and (laughs) and that might land you with a hate piece from the nation you know, and all that stuff. And people are afraid of that, but I'm not afraid of that. And we're not afraid of that. And we understand that this is necessary. There's no other pathway for us to push back on the regime than for the regime to be painting us as their enemy. Like, of course. Yeah. Well, well, you're joining, you know, known bigot, Michael Bolden. Um, (laughs) He's been on the SPLC's, you know, list for, for years. So, if anybody's a bigot, everyone knows it's it's Michael Bolden. Obviously, I'm joking, <laughs> but uh, 
He's got a question here from from Lee, and this I mean this kind of ties exactly into what you, we were just talking about, but maybe we can get more specific. Um, Lee says, "Love the messaging of the National LP Twitter." This is court, of course, over the last few days with the takeover. Uh, my question is, how does the new leadership plan to reach more non-libertarians, social media or otherwise? So I would say that there's there's the job of the party. Like when it comes to messaging and recruiting and all of that, there's two different jobs. There's the job of the party and there's the job of the candidates. I would say the party has a duty to represent libertarians. And the fact of the matter is, is that most libertarians are a not in the party and b hate the party um and and so it's incumbent upon the party to make the changes to represent libertarians and message in a way that represents libertarians the candidates are the ones that need to kind of be messaging to uh you know normies or whatever to get to get votes to get recruits that way but it's two completely different lanes Mm. of of messaging when you're talking to normies or trying to get libertarians, I think the party is obligated to represent libertarians. And when you consider that there's millions of libertarians and 17,000 members of the National Libertarian Party, we've got a lot of work to do. We're not even doing a good job with our own people at all. Or historically, we have. Yeah. Um, and and if we're not doing a good job with our own people, it doesn't look good for our ability to, to pull people who don't share our ideas or our values or whatever. So those people, I think we have to capture that first. I think the party has that duty to represent libertarians and, and to pull them in because who else is going to be your candidates? Who else is going to be your door knockers? Who else is going to be go, you know, tabling the, the local fair for you and setting up new county affiliates and all this stuff? So I would say it's more the candidate's job and the local level party's job to kind of go out to the normies, whereas the party has an obligation to represent libertarians. So f- follow up on that, because um, I've heard... I've heard it talked about that, um, and I'm not even sure if this has come from anyone in the LPMC, but using really this, uh, you know, this podcast network that we have out there, Libertarian Podcast, and also, uh, you know, going into the the fringe of the Libertarian Podcast, the Joe Rogans with the the larger audiences, and I've heard I've heard that talked about as a vehicle to uh, to raise money, you know, in order to compete with the. Uh, the Republicans and, and, and Democrats. So how much of an a- active strategy do you think that'll be? And, and breaking that down more, would that be more of a, you know, a grow the libertarian party type strategy, or, or would that be more like getting candidates on those uh, platforms um, to raise money that way? So I would say it's both. I mean, there's limited availability, but like when you talk about the podcast, you know, the, the highly visible ones that we can all think of off the, off the top of our heads are like Joe Rogan. He gets 13 million uh, mm-hmm. listeners, 12, 11 you know, million listeners an episode. You got Tim Pool. He gets like four or five million. Um, and, and the advantage there is that like people don't realize how close Dave Smith is with Joe Rogan on a personal level. Um, like he's not just getting interviewed by Joe Rogan. He's being interviewed by his friend and colleague, colleague in comedy, Joe Rogan. Um, and, and so there's a different, I would say there's a difference between just being interviewed for the sake of being interviewed and being legitimized because you have that connection. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and through Dave, we have that. Um, but then there's also unknown unknowns to, to use the, uh, the, the Rumsfeld thing, you know? And what, so what I mean by that is like, Maz just hit me up the other day and, and showed me that he got interviewed by some guy named Mike Rashid. I've never heard of this guy. Uh, he's apparently a figure in like, he's, uh, like, uh, black fitness type of thing. Like he's a black dude and he runs a fitness channel. I've never okay. heard of the guy, but he's got a million and a half YouTube subscribers. And there's 
an unknown patchwork of podcasts because what what I think the party culture needs to catch up with is that the paradigm of the media is dead. It's dead. The like the only people who are watching it are people who are over 40 who are just completely habitually baked into turning on the TV and putting on the right channel at the right time for the right program and all of that. Whereas everybody who is younger, that's not, they're not getting their ideas and disseminating their information through the media anymore. You know, and you see this when like, uh, what CNN tried to launch that app to get into the digital space and it failed <laughs> in like two, three weeks, you know, yeah. when, uh, you know, the biggest show on, on the biggest news show on cable television is Tucker Carlson. And he gets like 3.3 million viewers per show, which is great. I'm pretty sure Tim Poole was doing better than that, let alone Joe Rogan, you know, and 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 so like the whole paradigm is dead, and all of these these uh, independent podcasters are they are independent, and the thing that is really intriguing to me is that the thing that there seems to be a uniting theme with all of these these podcasters of generally speaking, given what's happened in the past two years, are these people like Rothbardy and anarchists? No, but I think the veneer of it can't happen here. I think that's gone. Oh yeah. Um, that's gone. And people are feeling the effects of, 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 of the state in, in very intimate ways that, you know, they, like how long have libertarians been talking about, well, you know, schools are, are public indoctrination centers. And, you know, that might've sounded like a conspiracy theory 10 years ago, but when you're sending your kid to school to learn mathematics and then they're coming home and say, Hey, you know, I was taught anal sex by a drag queen. Uh, you know, then, then you might go, what the fuck? You know, like, and, 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 and you know, the scales drop from your eyes when you're, when over a six months period, you're spending three times more at the grocery store for the same amount of stuff that you were before you start to go, what is going on? And these things aren't happening in a vacuum. They're people are, people realize that they just went through COVID and the prices are up and they were told they were non-essential and their job doesn't exist anymore. And their kids, like, these things immediately affect their family. So like, I think the scales have fallen from the eyes of a lot of people. And so while yes, these podcasters, they might not be, you know, going to the postgraduate course at the Mises university. Um, mm-hmm. They all generally want more Liberty and know something is going on and that's plenty to work with. Yeah. And, and nor do they need to go to the, the postgraduate course at Mises university. Um, <laughs> like you, like, like you just said, I mean, th- things have, of course you do need people to be, you know, steeped in the philosophy and, and understand it at that level. But honestly, there's probably enough of those people already. We re- I don't think we need, I don't think we need more of that. Um, we, we, we need people who have huge audiences who understand really what we're up against. And uh, I think, I, like you just pointed out, I think it's very apparent to a lot of people that the past two, three years you know, have made everyone hyper aware that things have changed and uh, the, the, the game has changed. I, want to, uh, I do want to talk about the future, uh, how you see it in the next you know, five, ten years, maybe, maybe two, five, ten years. Uh, but first, I want to come back to, to Reno, and I want to come back and ask you specifically about the uh you know the Mises bash event you had that Ron Paul headlined and you know knowing your history with Ron Paul um what did that mean to you in that moment when you're standing there in the crowd watching Ron Paul address uh the Mises caucus well I guess I should give a little backstory to under so people might understand because I think it means something a little bit deeper to me than than it does for maybe the average Ron Paul supporter Mm -hmm. um you know, for me and why I'm so, like, why I'm so passionate, why, why I would take this extremely tenuous path to make this my job and, and center 
all of this stuff, like center my life around all of this stuff is when I encountered Ron Paul, when I was about 18, 19 years old, I was in an extremely dark place in my life. I was frankly suicidal. I had a lot going on at home. Uh, I was actually extremely angry to be red pilled. Um, you know, I was kind of going through a cipher thing, if like referencing the matrix. Uh, I wish I could go back. I wish I could be stupid again. I'm so angry at, you know, I, I wasn't mature yet. So like I, I, mm-hmm. uh, everybody's an idiot except me. And, and, um, you know, why are they so stupid? Why can't they see it? So I was extremely angry. I felt extremely alienated. I had a lot going on at home and I had for years and, and, uh, I was just in a, a very dark place for, uh, quite a long period of my young life. And when I encountered Ron Paul, I didn't just have the intellectual awakening to the, to the ideas of Liberty. I did have that, but I didn't just have that. I caught a glimpse of who I would like to be like. And, and Mm. in, in that glimpse, I started to deconstruct the narratives that sustain my depression in my mind. You know, I, I started to deconstruct that I'm not fated to be this pathetic suffering thing. You know, I'm not, it's, it's not intrinsic to my experience as Michael Heist to be like this, you know, like I, I can strive, I can try to be like this guy. So in a real sense, I would say Ron Paul is one of a few things that literally saved my life. And like this might sound melodramatic, but I kind of feel like I now owe my life to the things that saved my life, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so that's, that's what I'm striving for. And it's, it's a very personal thing and not just an ideological thing for me. So, yeah. So to, so to be there and Ron Paul basically saying, you know, in a room, I, I would say there's about a thousand people there, uh, you know, saying that the, the, that how excited he is, how much energy is in the room, the revolution's alive and well, yeah, that's incredibly meaningful for me. It, it tells me that, that I'm on the right path and I'm doing the right thing and I'm where I need to be. Um, and, and I need to keep going, uh, even if the nation tries to destroy my reputation. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, th- thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I think, I think that's, a, that's an important part of the story. Um, and, and I think when you look at really the, the leading voices in the libertarian movement that have come behind Ron Paul, um, I mean, look at just the Lions of Liberty podcast. The reason that we have this podcast, why we started Lions of Liberty, is because of Ron Paul. You look at Dave Smith. I mean, Dave Smith is, is very open about the influence of Ron Paul in, uh, in his life. And it's interesting to see now you have this, you know, next wave of libertarians that are coming up who, of course, they know who Ron Paul is, but they don't have a, you know, a Ron Paul moment. Maybe they have a, a Dave Smith moment or they have, um, you know, something like a, you know, a, a Michael Malice moment. And then they, and then they heard a Dave Smith or it, it's just exactly. interesting to see th- things, th- things evolve. And I think it's just important to point out um, after, you know, you talking about Ron Paul's influence in your life that even people who have you know smaller podcasts who are talking about uh, these ideas who are gaining a following, how important it is to to really emulate someone like like a Ron Paul to set you know to set a good example and you know, to live a, a life that you know really demonstrates these values. So I, I think that's just that's just a good reminder of you know well I don't think any of us will ever be as renowned 
as uh, you know, as as Ron Paul, um, there's there's a lot of influence and responsibility that comes with talking about these ideas. Yeah, I, I mean, I told Dave, I said, with any luck, you will, uh, in a good way, you'll screw up some young depressed kid who will, in twenty years, you know, come and overthrow all us jaded old people, <laughs> you know, and yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so a few minutes left here, but I wanted to talk about um, just kind of get, you know, looking at your vision for, for really the future where you see the party, where you see this country going, you know, just kind of wildly speculating. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But um, I, I guess in, in your ideal scenario, what do you see happening in the next two to four years? I, I share a very similar outlook to Ron. I think the, the, the short term is dark, but the long term has a lot of uh, hope to it. And uh, I think, you know, we've been saying this forever, right? But the prices really are going up exponentially. And they really are going up exponentially as as a result of the, what was it, 8 or $12 trillion printed in the past two and a half years, all those Trump checks. Um, it's crazy that we can't even remember like eight to 12 tr- trillion with a $4 trillion range. is just, I mean, that's, that's enormous. That's like, yeah. yeah. And, comprehend and it. at some point this is going to go exponential, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, we will have to discover one way or another, a new paradigm. Um, and the question is, is, is that going to be, who's going to shape that paradigm? Are the people of this country going to shape the paradigm or is the cathedral and the state going to shape, uh, the paradigm? And, uh, you know, so we we have to do everything that we can. If we really believe what I just said, then then we have to do everything that we can because you know, I mean, I'm only 33 years old. I still have a hell of a future, let alone the kids I'm you know trying for right now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I I do see a lot of, but I also think it's borderline archetypal the way that this is happening. Like again, I said at the beginning, like it's almost been providential in in how this whole thing has just kind of opened up. Uh, before us to to lead to where we're at now, I'm not some political operative. I never went. To, I never went to college. You know what I mean? Like I I I I'm just some guy that loves this shit. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. and and um and uh, so yes, the inflation's getting out of control, but I also see the narrative crumbling. I see trust in media crumbling. I see trust in edu- in public education crumbling. I, I see people searching for answers. I see us rising up and taking over the party right as this is like hit, seemingly hitting a peak. And and we, for the first time, through all of these podcasters, they're coming to us. You know, Joe Rogan has publicly said that he would support Dave Smith. Dave Rubin has publicly said that he would support Dave Smith. We have all of these opportunities. So it really is a question of what do you focus on? Do you focus on the darkness that is the inflation and the specter of war with Russia, you know, and if you focus on that, what does that have to, what implication does that have to do with your actions? What do you act out after that? Or do you focus on the hope? Do you focus on the message? Do you focus on the opportunities that are in front of us? And I, and, you know, not to sound like a, like a new ager, but I really think that what you, what you uh, allow to, to proliferate your mind is, is going to affect how you act. And we're social animals, you know, how you mm-hmm. act signals uh, other people, your, your in-group is going to watch your actions and maybe make some judgments or maybe reaffirm their own biases or, or whatever. So it's incumbent upon us to be beacons, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and to be beacons of liberty and to be big beacons of truth and to be beacons of hope. Um, and, and only the individual can make that choice of what path they're going to go down. 
And and so I choose to focus on the opportunities. And, and I think that's what we all need to do. Uh, as far as the, 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 the caucus itself, um, you know, I'm looking forward to I think a big white pill moment in, in that whole theme is, is uh, you know, Hopefully Dave Smith runs in 2024. Hopefully Maj Torre, if I have him, if I have what I want, uh, is his is his VP. Hopefully they really do reach tens of millions of people with the legit, not just the the access, but the legitimacy of a Joe Rogan and all of this, you know, all of these figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of the on the horizon goal that I hope happens. In the more immediate decentralization, decentralization, decentralization. You know, we need to be looking at. Politically, and there's a lot of things to do outside of politics, but I think you're going to start to see a libertarian party that promotes those things that are outside of politics. Like they were just promoting the free thought or Mm -hmm. not the free thought, the free state project. Um, You know, I think you're going to start to see them promote Bitcoin. I think you're going to start to see them promote homeschool. Um, I I, and and focus politically on where it matters, which is that local level where you really can nullify the feds and you really can do that decentralization. And I think the more that we do that collectively collectively. Uh, the more trust that we're going to start to gain in our communities. And from that trust will sprout the real conversations about the ideas. Yeah. And I mean, to me, one of the most exciting parts about, about this movement, about the Mises caucus, um, there's a political aspect, but yeah, I think, I think the, the local community aspect is, is just as strong I mean, I'm in a bunch of these signal groups and, you know, see see the conversations going on and the friendships that are made and people helping each other out with uh, with different either finding a job or with a business or whatever. And then, as you just talked about, with the coming need for decentralization. And I mean, I immediately think uh, when you mentioned that back to a recent episode I had with a guy named Texas Slim who's starting up something called the Beef Initiative. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's freaking awesome, where he's connecting um, local ranchers. Um, it's primary, primarily starting in Texas, but he's going to expand it nationwide so you can buy beef with Bitcoin. And, I mean, his, his site's already up, the Beef Initiative, but things like that and already having, you know, having, a, having a strong network, I mean, the, the word um, to, to these you know, decentralized opportunities can just spread like wildfire. And I, I think, I think that is, I think it's more, more important than the political, political aspect of it. But sorry, uh, what's the that's, dude's that's name? Texas Slim. Okay. <laughs> I thought that, I thought you might be interested in that, but. Um, well, cause, cause it, it goes into my overall theme here. And again, the, the party has been blowing opportunities for a living for like 50 years. And, and, I'm not saying it's controlled by the feds, but it's like it's controlled by the feds. I mean, it, 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 it chronically shoots itself in the foot. And we really are in a moment where the, the trust in the media is gone. We really are in a moment where people are looking for alternatives than to, to, to Walmart for where they're getting their beef or where they're paying for their food. And farmers markets are now an option and, and homeschool co-ops are an option. Mm-hmm. There's all this skepticism. And if you just get some real fucking marketers in the LP to say, okay, We've got this opportunity. We've got this message. We've just got to go to some people who are figures in that movement and figure out how to f- properly form up the funnel to, to, to mm-hmm. bridge the gap and how we provide value for them. If we do that along all of these different domains and all of these different podcasters, I think you're going to see an exponential of like a, a exponential growth. And it, it might yeah. not be totally just like Rothbardian, but it will be liberty. It will be pro-liberty. And we, as the Rothbardians, are the ones who are shepherding it because we now you know, have control of the party. So we can keep it that way, shepherd that influx through, 
give them legislation for the local level to do all these kind of things, give them non-state action, you know, homeschooling co-ops. There's a Ron Paul homeschool curriculum. There's, you know, these different, just these different communities like what you're talking about and, and, and really do something here when it's needed the most. Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, we're, we're about out of time here. Thanks for staying for a couple extra minutes, but I mean, anything you want to plug, talk about, send people to, you got some time here. Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to, I, I would recommend as you harped on, as I'm harping on is even if you're not interested in political activity, this is now a community, a nationwide community. So I would say go to takehumanaction.com and sign up for our, our email letter, which will also route your information to our state level organizers and check it out. Even if you don't want to get involved in the LP or in politics, just check it out for the community. And you might find yourself making some friends and making some bonds that make you want to fight with them. Cause that seems mm-hmm. to be something that happens a lot. Um, if you've got more uh, money than you do time, you know, you can go to lpmesiscaucus.com slash donate and help us out. We're going to ex- be expanding our educational outreach initiatives, going to college campuses, bringing people like Tom Woods and Michael Bolden, you know, and Maj to talk about the areas of in- uh, interest to us, you know, gun control, nullification, secession, uh, you know, the Roth Party tradition of property rights, uh, all of this kind of stuff. Um, so we're going to be ramping up our support of local level candidates. I'm going to be shifting my role within the organization to kind of head up the issue initiatives. So I'm going to be outreaching to issue groups and have them point me to hotspots for psychedelic decriminalization over here or gun sanctuary stuff over here or, you know, whatever, um, so that I can deploy people at that local level around the country to nullify this stuff. And the community is taking care of all of the non-state stuff, you know? So I would say it's absolutely worth it, even if you're not politically oriented. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, Michael. This was, uh, this was awesome. And hopefully people got to see, you know, maybe learn, learn a little more about you than they did from, uh, from other interviews. And thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thanks again, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another great interview uh, today with Michael Heiss. And I guess we're going to keep this Libertarian Party Mises Caucus theme going. Um, I know that Mark is talking to Dave Smith. I believe actually today, so this is this is uh, airing on June 9th, Thursday, June 9th, and Mark has interview with Dave tonight, which will be streamed to our Lines of Liberty Pride members. So if you're in the Pride, you'll be able to, to watch it live, comment, ask questions, all that good stuff. And I assume that it'll be published to the public on Monday. So if you want to watch it live, watch it live. If you want to watch it as soon as it comes out on Monday, make sure to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty Network podcast feed, and you'll listen to it then. So I'm excited to hear what uh, what the two of them um, talk about and, and how everything shakes out um, between Mark and Dave. If you haven't checked out the Lions of Liberty store, I am going to be adding. I already have some of the some of the uh, the new designs in there. But as you know, I've rebranded my show. Mark's rebranded his show, and Brian has rebranded his show. So over the next couple days, um, if you listen to this on Thursday, maybe I'll have it in here uh, on Thursday or Friday. But I want to get all of the new T-shirt designs in the Lions of Liberty store. Just go to lionsofliberty.store uh, to check those out, and of course, you can check out and purchase any of our other old designs. 
any of the old legacy designs that are there. Felony Friday still there. Electric Liberty Land still there. Um, all, all of our previous legacy designs are still there for the time being. But honestly, I don't think they're going to be there for that much longer. So if you want to pick up one of those shirts, pick them up. If you want to pick up one of the new shirts, pick those up as well. So lionsofliberty.store, check it out. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Oh,